Okay, last time we left off in Acts 9, the first half of verse 19. And today we will pick up the second half of verse 19. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we ask that you edify your people by your word and by your spirit for your glory and for our joy in you. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. This is God's holy and errant word from Acts chapter 9, 19 through 31. For some days he, that is the uh, Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of, whose, of those who call upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Amen. This is God's word. I titled this message Edification. Uh, we have Christian words that we sometimes use and maybe don't always know the meaning of. I'm going to go be edified. It's, it's, we're here for the purpose of edification. Uh, most people don't use that word at all. What does that mean? Does it mean you just come to be encouraged or to feel better? Uh, back in Westcliff, we had a a pastor down in Wetmore, and, and we invited a coworker down to come to our church in Wetmore. And this particular week, my my pastor just really was, I mean, hellfire and brimstone, literally. And my, and it was, it was maybe a little intense, especially for someone uninitiated to these kind of things. And my coworker that we said, man, we did not like that. 
I was not lifted up at all. And so that's often what we say when we, where we think when we, we say edification, that we come to church or we come to the word to be lifted up. Well, yes, in one sense, but the word edification is related to the word edifice or, or building. Uh, in, in Latin, edificatio, it's to build. That's what it means. And we know that Christ will build his church. And this passage ends in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being (laughs) built up. The Greek word is uh, oikadomeo, which just means to build a house. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Calvin says that the metaphor of a building is very convenient because the church is the temple, the house of God. This is what we're talking about here, being built up, building up an edifice, a building, a magnificent structure. We read in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So for us in that passage, uh, we feel the pains of that first comment that we are living stones rejected by men. And we tend to forget the glory of the fact that we are being built up as stones to a living house, a spiritual house. We, we tend to lose confidence in the fact, especially when we face trials, that Jesus is building his church. Or, or maybe that he can build it, but we can't be a part of it. I'm too broken, I'm too sinful, whatever. Or, or maybe we lose the zeal for being both part of the building and tools in the construction of the great edifice. So as we have seen this story of Acts is a, a theological history. And this refresher course in the early history of the construction of the church should help us to renew our, uh, our belief and our zeal in that, the fact that Christ is building his church. Um, God likes to use history to undergird us as a foundation. You, you know the books of, of Chronicles, those ones that are probably the most difficult to read in the, in the Bible, all the names and the, the repetitive history. What's the point of those? Those were histories for the Jews who were coming back out of exile to tell them, this is who you are. This is your history. This is your foundation. That's exactly what Acts is for us. This is our history. This is our foundation. It's a history for us and it's to help build us up. It's to edify us. So we see in this passage, I'm going to identify four ways that Christ is building his church. Four ways. And the first is establishing his apostles' legitimacy. We talked about this some last week with Paul's conversion or Saul's conversion. Um, and, and perhaps that feels like an insignificant point to us. Uh, because we're so familiar with it. Of course, Paul is an apostle. But it's a, a really important point, especially that Paul shows his credentials, because Paul is this, this apostle untimely born, converted later by the vision of Christ. So he must confirm his 
apostleship, and it's very important to Paul. We, we read um, in his epistles in Galatians, he's just over and over emphasizing the first two chapters that he is an apostle, and he begins that epistle, Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. He, he's very interested to make sure everybody knows he's an, a legitimate apostle. Second Corinthians emphasizes this over and over again. Uh, an example is from in chapter 12, uh, 11 and 12. He says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles. These are men who are false teachers setting themselves up as apostles. So I was not inferior to them, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So Paul is always very conscious to, to show his credentials as an apostle. So we need to, to kind of suspend our familiarity and think about how important this is. I mean, you would not let me replace your knee or hip, right? I don't have the, the credentials. You wouldn't let a, a person who's not a dentist drill on your teeth. So why should we listen to Paul? Does he have the proper, proper credentials? Is he legitimate? And this story records and confirms Paul's or Saul's apostleship in a few ways. First of all, and we talked about this last week, is the whole impossibility of it. It's just counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. And therefore, how could it have happened but for God? Uh, even the most liberal scholars admit that Paul existed and that he had a radical conversion. It's just obvious this man was somehow converted radically to Christianity. The name he hated so much, the name of Jesus, all of a sudden is on his lips. He's proclaiming it. He can't stop proclaiming it. It's this wild 180 degree turn. And what is the cause of that? It says in verse 20, and he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He proclaimed Jesus to the point where everywhere he went, people wanted to kill him. He became the persecuted, where he was the persecutor. And the Jews in Damascus, they summed it up well when they said in verse 21, all who heard him were amazed. Is not this the man who made havoc? In Jerusalem, of all those who call upon this name, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? That said, who is this guy talking about Jesus in our synagogues? Didn't he come here to arrest people who were Christians? This radical 180 degree turn is an encouragement to us, and we need to remember that if Christ can change Saul from the most adamant hater to the most zealous preacher, he can use you and I. Whatever our hang-ups are about our sins, our insecurities, our failures, our weaknesses, He can put us to work as His servants, as His tools in His hand. Corinthians tells us that, that the gifts we are given are for the building up of the church, the edification of the church. He can use us. I love it's, it's trite, but God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. He can use us. If He can use Paul, He can use us. And likewise, He can save the most wayward, the most lost. Uh, I think of... Um, now I'm spacing on His name. 
Doreen's nephew, Tostin. Yeah, who who doesn't claim to be a Christian yet, but you've seen God working in his life. One day, what he he becomes a Christian and preaches Christ. You know what a testimony, and that happens. It happens regularly. God can save anyone. Second confirmation of Paul's apostleship is just the diversity of the groups that take notice of Saul's conversion. This is not a, a back room conversion. This is diverse and it's public. And everybody hates him and wants to kill him. The Jews in Damascus want to kill him. The, the Hellenists in Jerusalem want to kill him. The disciples in Damascus accept him and care for him and, and, and uh, protect him. The disciples in Jerusalem, though it takes some time, also accept him, which is our, the third confirmation here of, of his uh, legitimacy is the acceptance by the Christians. Paul's call is independent, it's personal, but it's not in isolation. The Christians accept him. He's not a lone ranger apostle. In Damascus, in verse 23, we read, um, when many days had passed, and we don't know quite what many days is, um, but we know from Galatians that at some point during this time, he spent about three years in Arabia, and actually... We read in Second Corinthians, one of the people who is responsible for surrounding the city of Damascus and trying to keep him there and to kill him was the governor from Arabia. So his time spent in Arabia wasn't like this desert sort of <laughs> vision experience. He was preaching the gospel and making them angry, and they came to Damascus, surrounded the city. So it's a little bit unclear of the timeline, but about three years in, in, in that time he had gone to Arabia And during that time, the Jews began to plot to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So Paul was apparently there long enough to accrue some some pupils, some disciples, some people who were listening to Paul's teaching. And they took care of him. The Christian community took care of him. They sought out his well-being at risk to themselves by lowering him in a basket. And in Jerusalem, likewise, there was some hesitancy, but they ended up accepting him. In verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and now Damascus, how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And when he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So again, we have the Christian community adopting Paul. Uh, we have Barnabas, who is called the son of encouragement. That's what his name means. We read back in chapter 4. That's why they called him that, because he had that characteristic. He's a man of really, I think Barnabas may be the, one of the persons in the Bible I'd most like to hang around. He just seemed to be the most kindly, friendly, generous human being. In chapter 4, we saw he was selling all his property and giving the proceeds to the church in chapter 11:24 it calls him a good man full of the holy spirit and of faith 
He's called by the apostles, son of encouragement, and he seems to be this advocate. Later, when Paul is frustrated with John Mark, he advocates for John Mark. He, he seems to advocate for people, as he does here with Paul. So who better to cross paths with Saul? Um, he takes him under his wing. He brings him in and advocates for him before the apostles. And Paul is accepted by the apostles, by the Christian community, so that he is working with them, going in and out among them. And again, when his life is in danger, they take care of him. They, they take him down to Caesarea, ship him off to Tarsus. So, the first building block that we see in this passage of the church is that Christ is establishing his apostle, this man who wrote a good portion of our New Testament and historically proving the veracity of his conversion and call. Um, Ephesians 4 calls the apostles the foundation of the church. Saul's apostleship is one of the most important foundation stones, even for us. It's the foundation we rest upon. And I I wonder, where are we at in the building of this great edifice? (laughs) Are we just building the floor right now on the top of the, the foundation? I hope not. I hope we're kind of toward the top. I hope Jesus is coming back soon. We don't know, but we all build on the same foundation. So the next uh, foundation or uh, building stone, if you will, is the preaching of the word. The preaching of the word. And it always comes back to this in Acts. The most inspiring, life-changing... People can turn to Islam and have a life-changing experience. Like, What is the central message? What is the point of this change? It's the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the, the apostles were foundational, is what they preached, the message they preached. Um, you can turn over, because it's a little bit longer, turn to 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through, less, uh, 5 through 11. 1 Corinthians 3. Notice what Paul says about being the, a builder of Christ's church. 1 Corinthians 3, 5-11 What then is Apollos, or what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No one can build a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And what we often do is say, I like the footprint of the house, but man, wouldn't it be great if we could add a laundry room over here? I'm going to build a little bit of a foundation over here and add on. He says, no one can lay a foundation 
but that which is which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So God, in this story, he began to employ Saul immediately in his conversion. And as he does, of course, as, as Saul is prone to do, he just hits it with a full head of steam. He just plunges right in. In verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. He proclaimed Jesus. He preached Jesus. This message about Jesus, as Michael was saying this morning about the deity of Christ, it's the center of our faith. Jesus of the foundation is the cornerstone. He's the foundation of the foundation. He's the rock upon which we build the house. And he says that he is the Son of God. That's what Paul was proclaiming right away. Jesus is the Son of God, which to the Jews was a very specific messianic name. When Jesus was being tried, the high priest asked him, uh, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Psalms or passages like Psalm 110 um, would have given them this idea that that he was the Son of God. And in Hebrews 1, 5, we read, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Or again, from the covenant with David in 1 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So this name, Son of God, has specific messianic implications. He's preaching in the synagogue, Jesus Christ, the, the Christ has come. And once again, he's been murdered, but he's risen and he's reigning on high. These are the kind of arguments he would have been making, Saul would have been making in the synagogue. And in verse 22, we see more of his argumentation. Uh, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, you think as a trained Pharisee, how much scripture this man knew, Saul knew. He confounded the Jews. He was a baby Christian, but he had so much scripture in his head and, and they could make no response just as they could not to Jesus or to the apostles or to Stephen. Uh, I was listening to Brian Borgman on this and he commented on the fact that there's so much power in catechesis, training, especially children, filling their minds at this age, young young age, with doctrine and scripture. They may not be able to apply it all yet, but when they become teenagers and they begin to wrestle with things or, or in their adulthood or whenever God chooses to convert them, their hard drive will be packed with all this information that suddenly will make sense to them. That's what happened with Saul is he had all this scripture, all this doctrine, and then he had Christ, and it clicked, and now he could confound the Jews with scriptural arguments. In verse 27, he continues to talk about the preaching of Saul, that at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus, and 28 again, that he was preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and even disputed against the Hellenists. So this man was a bold preacher. Saul was bold. Uh, I don't know about you, but I struggle with sort of imposter syndrome. Like, I don't belong here. I don't belong doing this. If if anybody should have wrestled with imposter syndrome, it should have been Saul. 
the murderer, persecutor of the church, hater of Christ, lifetime devoted to false ideologies, and yet he's a man called, a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he began immediately to preach Christ. So we should never say, I'm too weak to be used by God. I'm too sinful to be used by God. I don't belong in this. When God has called you, and He has if you're a Christian, He has called you as a sinner. There's nothing more wonderful than redeemed sinners preaching the redemption of Christ to sinners. You're not proclaiming yourself. I praise God for that as a person who has to preach regularly. I mean, I believe in walking the walk, but if I had to do literally everything I said, I would have to be, perfect. I would have to be Jesus. I couldn't be up here. But He uses weak vessels. 2 Corinthians 12.10 For the sake of Christ, then I am, a, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the word of the gospel, the word of Jesus preached, was and is one of the most foundational building blocks of the church. I mean, beyond that, it, it is the engine of the crane that lifts the blocks into place. It is the pins that hold the blocks together. It is the light of the sun that illumines the work of the workers. The, the word, we cannot go on without the word. We cannot live the Christian life without receiving or proclaiming in some sense the word of Christ. The third building block in this passage is, is God's providential guidance and pr- protection. Uh, twice he was, people were trying to kill him and twice God saved him. First in verse 25, the Jews were trying to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And again, the Hellenists in Jerusalem, in verse 30, were plotting to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And I, this is what I was thinking about when I read this. Is, didn't Stephen die for the faith? Like, Why not Paul? Why didn't Paul stay and die? I mean, we see Paul, how zealous he is. He, he surely could have done it. Why didn't he stay and die? Why would he go through the humiliating process of being lowered in a laundry basket? (laughs) Or probably more likely a food basket like the one that the apostles carried around. Why does he sneak away to Tarsus? Why not be martyred for the cause? Well, because God was not done with Saul. Remember what God said to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Christ, through the brotherhood of the church, providentially guided Saul and protected his life because Saul had more dying to do and a lot more living to do. As we've seen through Acts, persecution kicks the coals of the gospel. It spreads it far and wide. As a result of persecution, as a baby Christian, all the places that Saul's been, Damascus, Arabia, Jerusalem, now Tarsus, and this is the only the beginning of all of his adventures in the gospel. So again, I want to encourage you that, that whatever discomfort, uh, whatever pain, whatever thorn in your side or pressure 
you have as a result of gospel, the gospel, and we have all, all of us have these pains, we can be assured that God is using those things for his glory. Uh, perhaps he's moving you, repositioning you. Certainly he's working to sanctify you, which at times feels a lot like what it is, our flesh being pinned to a cross. I mean, it hurts, it stinks. We feel like our afflictions are the disfavor of the Lord, but in truth, as believers, they are always the favor of the Lord. We don't usually understand it, but that's true. He uses it. He is using it. I often joke, it's not really a joke, it's a half joke, to be absent from the body is to be present from the, with the Lord. Somebody says, be careful hunting, I shrug it off. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'm not suicidal, um, but... Or, or we say, Lord, come quickly. Why do we say that? Because this life is hard. It hurts. I mean, isn't it only natural for the marathon runner to long for the finish line? Uh, last time at Presbytery, uh, Jonathan Flagger's pastor, Shane, was preaching to us, and he told us about in, in the Boston Marathon at, at mile 20, there's a hill called Heartbreak Hill. If you're running a, a marathon and, and at mile 20 you're climbing Heartbreak Hill, which would just burn, you'd be insane not to want the finish line. And the same is true in the Christian life. If we're not feeling the burn, we're probably not running the race. If we're not encountering resistance, we're probably just laying around. I've been rereading The Lord of the Rings, uh, and Frodo in his journey often reflects back, and he always wants to, man, I wish I could go back to the Shire, the comfort of the Shire, the security and warmth of Rivendell, right? Well, of course he thinks that. There'd be something wrong with Frodo if he was in the deep, dark mines of Moria facing orcs and trolls and didn't want to go back to the Shire. He would be a fool. Affliction makes us long for the homeland. So if you want out, if you're tired of the resistance, that's normal. It's meant to drive us to long for the homeland, to long to be with Christ, to receive our final rest. So in the face of the affliction and resistance of life, um, never buy into this idea that God does not care. God is not watching out for me. I mean, we can feel like that and we can even cry out like Habakkuk, How long, O Lord? But never buy into this idea, God doesn't care for me. Expect in this life, this life is, is a marathon. It's painful and weary, wearying. Uh, expect to face heartbreak hill. Expect weariness. Expect opposition. But expect that God will complete what he started in you. He, he will carry you through the, to the end. So that's the third building block of this passage is that Christ is providentially guiding and protecting his people. He always has and he always will. And the mission is never our comfort, but the propagation of the gospel. 
But that doesn't mean there is no comfort. In fact, far from it. And that leads us to the fourth building block is, is Christ's communion with his people. Uh, he does not leave us to fight alone, to journey alone, to build alone. Acts uh, 9.31 Now the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Uh, notice a few details. First of all, this is the second of six summary statements in Acts indicating kind of a shift in focus. So now we, we've seen um, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, this region has been proclaimed to as a part of the Great Commission, and now it's going to begin to spread out more and more intentionally to the Gentiles. Um, also notice that the word church here is singular. The church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was being built up. We start to see the universality of the church, that though there's these different places, different regions, different congregations, it's one body, one church. And in fact, the ministry to Galilee is never even mentioned in Acts, and yet here it says that the church in Galilee was being built up. So the Great Commission is working, it's being fulfilled. Also, we see that the church has peace. I noticed a lot of commentators saying, they had peace because Saul went away. <laughs> he was, a, he was a, a bit of a provocative man. and Finally, he went away to Tarsus and they had peace. Uh, I don't think that's what it's saying. This is a summary statement reaching farther back into Acts. I think there's still problems. The Jews and the Hellenists still hate Christians. There's still resistance. And even in a few chapters, James the Apostle will be beheaded by Herod. But in the midst of struggle, in the midst of resistance, in the midst of opposition, the church knew the peace of God. I think that's what he's saying. And the church is being built up. It's being edified. And it's being multiplied. I'm no expert on church growth. But I say, I, I, I can say pretty clearly that the oft-employed tricks are not right to multiply the church. Notice here the context of church multiplication, that they were walking in the fear of the Lord. We have such a a woefully low grasp of the holiness of God that we should have a holy and reverent awe of the person of Jesus Christ, a keen personal awareness of God's holiness a grasp of the awesome power and judgment of God that would remove from us the fear of man. And likewise, a happy submission to King Jesus and a trust and protection in His protection and guidance and a love for His Word. We should walk in the fear of the Lord. Uh, Robert Godfrey, and by the way, over the next coming months, I will be inundated with Ligonier resources, so you can expect a lot of <laughs> Ligonier from me. But Godfrey answering a question at a, at a Ligonier conference, how do we keep young people in the church? He said, show them that church and relationship with God is a serious thing. He said, the American church as a whole, in an effort to appear relaxed and casual, has unintentionally communicated that church is unimportant. 
And we mistakenly think that people just want to relax in the Shire. Which we do. But in truth, we're also created with a drive to be on a mission with a purpose. When we are in the mines of Moria, we long for the Shire. But when we are in the Shire, we feel a lack of purpose. We need to be confronted with the holiness of God. It's walking in the fear of the Lord that propels us in this great effort to engage in this great project, this this edificatio, this building of the building, the great temple of, of Christ. And then the other thing that they were doing was walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Derek Thomas pointed out that there's a parallel here between Barnabas and the Holy Spirit. And I thought this was fascinating. Barnabas meaning son of encouragement. That word encouragement is the same word that Jesus used of the Holy Spirit in, in John 14. Uh, parakletos, comforter, helper, advocate. We are not alone in the trials and the resistance of this life. Even as Barnabas took Saul under his wing and cared for him, and advocated for him, even though Saul was facing rejection on all sides. The Jews wanted to kill him. The Christians wouldn't let him in. Barnabas advocated for him. He brought him into the fold. In the same way, the Spirit gathers us under his wing. He advocates for us. He brings us into the fullness of fellowship with Christ, with his people. If you don't know whether you have the Holy Spirit... Uh, I suggest going back to our our sermons and listening to the sermon on fighting phony faith from chapter 8. I felt like Luke really gave some clarity there on what it means to have the Holy Spirit. But the church does not multiply truly in the absence of the Holy Spirit. Calvin says on this point that if we lack the regeneration and consolation of the Spirit, we lose not only our felicity, our peace, but we become nothing ourselves. Without the Holy Spirit, we're nothing as Christians. The Spirit is the the boots-on-the-ground builder of Christ's church. He is the edifier. So this historical account is our history. It's for our encouragement. It's so we can see the foundations upon which we are building. Um, some of what happened then is unique. It's unique to the, that period of redemptive history. We are not Saul. We are not called to be apostles. But here in these stories, we see plainly the hand of God building His holy temple. And we know that that same hand is at work today. Christ Jesus is still building His church. His word is going forward. He continues to guide and protect us on this perilous and painful journey. And His Spirit continues to comfort us, to regenerate souls, to give gifts for service to the saints, and to edify the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Amen.